0: Well, good morning, South Winds. It is so, so very good uh, to be here with you today, to see all of you. Isn't it a wonderful day that the Lord has given us today? Uh, We are rejoicing and glad in him as we've been able to come together, and it's an exciting day every day that we get together as God's people. But uh, I am super excited today because of the opportunity we have right after this service to have our time of hanging out together, fellowshipping, eating, and most of all, baptizing. And I just want you to know, if you have any thoughts about like going home and not participating and not seeing, over 40 people have made commitments to get baptized today. 40 people, and there may be more, even more than that. And... It's, it's just gonna be a great and amazing day as we celebrate God's mercy and his salvation in our lives. Amen, amen. Well, welcome to week number two of our new series, Louder, Rising Above the Noise, where we're talking together, thinking biblically about how we can, as God's people, rise above all of our culture's noise. And what we're talking about is by keeping our focus on the gospel, And as I said last week, it's really very easy for Christ followers sometimes to allow all the noise around us to become the noise in us. And that's not what we want to do. Sometimes we let the noise that's all around us get so loud, it drowns out what matters most, which is the gospel. And, And if I were to sum this series up in a sentence, here's what it would be. We want the gospel to be louder than anything else. We want the gospel to be louder than anything else. So how can we let that happen? Well, if you were here last week, you'll remember maybe that we talked about how we can stop social distancing. And we made it really clear that it has nothing to do with six feet. Okay, um, It's about healing the relational divisions that have risen among God's people by practicing grace by finding unity around what matters most, that we are God's people who have been entrusted with God's mission, and that's to share the good news of Jesus, how he came to save the world uh, from our sins. And the basic idea we were kind of wrestling with last week was, was this. If we're busier fighting and disagreeing with each other, more busy doing that than we are focusing on the gospel, then why would we think that the world would bother to listen to what we have to say. Now today, we're gonna look at a second biblical principle which can help us keep the gospel louder, and it is this, take off your masks. Now, that's nothing to do with a piece of cloth, just to be clear, Um, I mean, would you agree with me that masks have been, a little bit controversial in the last 18 months, right? I mean, you know, lots of opinions on masks, right? Lots of opinions. Some of us have masks on right now, some of us don't, but we are not in any way talking about the masks that you might wear on your face. What we're going to be talking about today are the emotional and spiritual masks that sometimes we put on, masks that sometimes can hide realities in our lives, realities with our marriages, realities with our kids, maybe with our, our employment or maybe with our emotions or even our dysfunctions. The mask, maybe, that's now hiding who we've become during these last 18 months. See, some of us right now are emotionally or spiritually masked up. And you're just living in denial about what the last 18 months have done to you. Some of us are masked up because we're living in secrecy. We've got a part of our life no one else knows about. Some of us are wearing masks because we're dealing with guilt and we're dealing with shame and and some of us actually think that these masks we've put on cover things up and no one else can see and they, they they take care of whatever it is we've done. But you know what the big problem with masks is? Masks never deal with what's behind the mask. They never do. In other words, masks don't solve anything. They don't make anything go away. So I just want to ask you this morning, what's behind your mask? Is it depression? Is it a broken marriage? Is it an addiction? Is it a child that's breaking your heart? Is it financial debt that just seems like it's swallowing you up? What is your mask? What's behind it? And we're going to explore this issue with three questions that I hope will help us uh, unpack it. Here's the first question if you're taking notes on the app or Just with paper and pen, you can write this down. What what happens when we put on masks? What happens when we put on masks? And we're gonna get into this by by doing a study of a story that really is one of the most famous mask-wearing attempts ever. It's about a man who isolated and who who made himself vulnerable in, in many ways because he was, you might say, working from home not going to the office. Sound familiar? (laughs) He isolated, he stayed home, and he got himself caught in some places where he was making sinful choices, and he ended up wearing a mask. Here's how the story begins. I think you'll recognize it when we start to read it. It's 2 Samuel 11, beginning in verse one. In the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. So what are we looking at here? Well, we we have a king who's chosen to stay home, who's chosen to remain isolated during a time when he should have been leading. Uh, The author tells us it was spring. This was the season when kings led their armies out to war. It was the season for defending and, and for protecting the nation. And we don't know why David chose to stay home, but he put himself in a place of emotional and spiritual vulnerability. He wasn't doing his job, and in his isolation, he didn't have his usual relationships, he didn't have his normal structures and accountability that would've been part of his life. Now, in contrast maybe to us, David wasn't forced to work from home. It was his choice, but the results remain the same. Isolation, a lack of structure and or accountability, oftentimes makes us vulnerable. So whatever the particular causes were for for David, what happened in his life led to this place where thoughts that he had and choices that he was interested in making were just kind of free to go places that they might not have gone otherwise. And he indulges temptation. And his sin leads to so much emotional and relational wreckage, so much pain, so much tragedy, so much destruction. It's interesting though, and I hope maybe you, you, you picked up on this. We, we even at this point see God's grace in the story and, and it's, it's in this place where this man that David sends to find out about this woman comes back and in his message, he actually gives David a warning. Did you notice that? He points out to David that this woman whose name was Bathsheba was married. And he tells David that she's married to a man whose name is Uriah. And David would have immediately put all together, here's the reality, maybe you don't know this yet, but Uriah was one of David's most loyal soldiers and officers who at the precise moment that David was thinking of sleeping with Uriah's wife, Uriah was out fighting battles for David. Doesn't God often do that for us? Sometimes when we're Encountering temptation, God offers us grace by giving us warnings, by sending us signals that say, hey, you don't want to make this choice. It's going to harm you. You don't want to do this. It's going to damage you. And sometimes maybe we respond, sometimes like David, maybe we push past God's loving warnings. And so what happens, of course, you know the story. David uses his power as the king to sleep with another man's wife. And I wanna make an observation here. I think sometimes people read this story as just a simple case of adultery. Um, Sometimes people want to think about, well, whether, whether or not Bathsheba was kind of at fault because, you know, she shouldn't have been outside taking a bath. And I just wanna tell you, if that's where you're going with it, if that's what you're thinking, you're mistaken, because of David's role as king, and because of Bathsheba's place as the king's subject, what this happens here is nothing more than really a kind of sexual assault. It was horrific. It was egregious sin. After it's done, David sends her home, but of course there are consequences. She soon discovers that she's pregnant. And like we we typically do when we wear a mask, David tries to cover up his sin. He, he, He brings Uriah home from the battlefield on leave, hoping that Uriah would go to his home and sleep with his wife, and then would assume the baby was his. But Uriah, this soldier, was too loyal, too honorable to sleep with his wife while all the other soldiers were out fighting. And so the next night, David tried again, and this time he got him drunk, and thought maybe if I can get him drunk enough, it'll break his inhibitions down and it'll just go home. But even drunk, Uriah was a better, more honorable man than David. And so the next day, David thinks he has no other choice. He sends Uriah back to the army and he arranges for him to be stationed at the very front of the, line, the battle lines where his death would be certain. And in verse 15, 2 Samuel 11 David very coldly says this in his message, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. In other words, David compounds his sexual sin by arranging for Uriah's murder, and like many of us who engage in cover-up, when David uh, has his plan come together, he thinks he's solved his problem. But if you go to the end of chapter 11, verses 26 and 27, it says, it says this. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. So, What happened during your lockdown, during your COVID these last 18 months? That's David's right there. David sinned greatly. David started a life of mask wearing. Here's the second question to help us unpack this issue and it's what does God want to do with our masks? What does God wanna do with our masks? The last part of Samuel 2 Samuel 11, verse 27, has these ominous words. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. What we're gonna find out in chapter 12, which takes place about a year later, is that God is gonna send a prophet, a prophet whose name is Nathan, and he's gonna confront David. And what happens is that David, Nathan tells David a story about a lamb because David was a shepherd as a boy. Nathan knew this could get past his defenses and potentially open him up to hear and see what he had done. Beginning in verse one again, let's read this, this story. The Lord sent Nathan to David, and when he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead... He took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. See what's happening here is that God did what God always does at some point with our masks. God takes the mask off. See, in his grace and in his mercy, God in this moment caused David to see his sin and what it had led to in his life, what his actions and his choices had had caused. So what was the result? What was the result in David's life of having that mask taken off? What effect did it have on him? Go to verse 13 in 2 Samuel 12, and it says this Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. For the first time, David sees what is behind the mask, and it broke him. David sees his sin, and he repents, he confesses, and he receives forgiveness. That brings us to the third question, and it's a very personal question. It's a very pointed question. It's aimed right at each one of us. It's simply this, what mask are you wearing? What mask might you be wearing today? Now, I don't stand up here knowing what is behind your mask, but I do know Because of conversations that uh, I've had with many of you as your pastor, conversations that many of you have had with other ones of our pastors, I I do know from reading and listening to what's going on in our culture that there are are several issues that just kind of keep coming up, especially after these last 18 months. I'm also indebted for some of this material to a helpful message from from Jim White. And I want us to kind of dig into four issues that might reflect the kind of mask that some of us are dealing with. The first one is a mask that hides a kind of an emotional struggle. Most often it is depression, depression. Maybe some of you are wearing the mask of depression right now. You're hiding behind that mask. And, And one reason the people who struggle with depression tend to hide behind a mask is that so many of us see depression as a a form of weakness, maybe as a spiritual sin. And so we feel ashamed, we feel guilty that we're depressed, we keep our depression a secret. And what I want you to hear from me today as I start on this is this very, very clearly. You need to take that mask off. There is no reason for you to wear a mask about this. There is no reason for you to be ashamed. You don't need to feel guilty if you wrestle with depression. See, in, in most all cases, clinical depression is a, a mood disorder that's rooted in the brain's failure to regulate chemicals that control our, our moods. And it's not a sin anymore than when you get physically ill from a virus. See, we don't really know in many regards what it is all when you put it all together that causes uh, the brain to fail to process chemicals in a way that, that, you know, leads to normal or or typical emotions. It's a very, very complex issue. But one thing we do know is that emotional trauma, ongoing stress, lengthy periods of difficulties, kind of, sort of, like what we've all been going through the last 18 months, can trigger, can lead to, can cause kinds of depression, We should not be surprised that more people after 18 months of what we've experienced are are dealing with this. And it's unfortunate that so many people who really don't understand the underlying issues tend to make depression always a spiritual issue when many times it's simply a medical issue. And so I just wanna say to you, if you wrestle with this, if you're struggling here, do not please keep a mask of shame on. One of the things that, we like to do at Southwinds is try to find ways to provide for people that are struggling. And we have care groups like Living Grace that are specifically designed to help you work through mental health issues like depression or, or like anxiety. So don't be ashamed. Take your mask off. Don't be afraid to tell a friend that you're on antidepressants. This should not be an issue any more um, than if you were taking uh, insulin as a diabetic. You're, you're treating a problem that happens frequently in this broken world, we do not need to be ashamed. We can take the mask off. Second kind of mask that many have been wearing these last 18 months relates to addiction. Now we could talk about many types of dependencies, but here we're looking at the the addictions that, that dominate and destroy our lives. Maybe it's prescription medications, Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's alcohol or food or gambling. Maybe it's video games. There are all kinds of different dependencies and addictions that we can develop in our lives. The the dictionary defines addiction in this way. It's a compulsive, chronic, physiological or psychological need for a habit-forming substance, behavior, or activity having a harmful physical, psychological, or social Effect. And so often when we struggle with addiction, we go to incredible lengths to keep our addictions behind a mask. I read one story about this kind of mask wearing in a book that's called The Ragamuffin Gospel. Some of you may have read it. It's by an author named Brennan Manning, and he tells in this book the story about when he was a patient at an alcohol rehabilitation center in Minnesota. He was one day in a group session with 25 men, all of whom wrestled with various kinds of chemical dependency. The group was being led by a seasoned counselor and therapist named Sean Murphy O'Connor. And as part of this treatment, being in this rehab center, every man there had signed legal affidavits that that gave up privacy, uh, that committed them to complete transparency. At one point, Uh, Sean Murphy O'Connor told a patient whose name was Max that it was gonna be his turn to sit on the hot seat as they called it. And this was a chair that was in the middle of this large circle. And so Max sat down. Max was this wealthy businessman. He was married. He had five kids. He was a nominal Christian. O'Connor said, Max, let's get into your history. Tell us how much have you been drinking per day? And Max said, oh, that's easy. I have a two Bloody Marys before lunch, two martinis before the office closes at five. Then I have two martinis before dinner and two more before going to bed. So a total of eight drinks a day, Max. Max said, absolutely right. Not a drop more, not a drop less. Another group member said, you ever hide a bottle somewhere in the house? Max said, don't be ridiculous. I don't have to hide anything, it's all out in the open. Well, how many bottles do you have in the house, Max? Max said, well, I don't really know the actual count. Offhand, I would say, maybe like two cases of Smirnoff vodka, a case of Beefeater gin, a few bottles of bourbon and scotch, and a few other liquors. The interrogation went on for another 20 minutes. Max fudged, Max hedged, Max minimized and rationalized and, and justified his drinking patterns. And finally, trapped by this relentless cross-examination, he admitted that he secretly kept a bottle of vodka in the nightstand, a bottle of gin in his suitcase you know, for travel purposes, another in his bathroom cabinet for medicinal purposes, and three more at the office for drinks throughout the day. Then O'Connor said, Give me a phone. And a telephone was brought, and he dialed a number in Max's hometown. He put the call on speakerphone so everyone there could hear. When the person answered, O'Connor said, Is this Hank Shea? The guy at the other end said, Yeah, who's this? He said, My name's Sean Murphy O'Connor. I'm a therapist at an alcohol and drug rehab center in Minnesota do you remember a customer named Max? With his family's permission, I am researching his drinking history and, and we know that you tend bar in this tavern every afternoon. So I'm wondering if you could, you could tell me approximately how much Max drinks every day. Shea said, oh, he, he drops a wad here every afternoon. Max has his standard six martinis. Max jumped up and started swearing at everyone in the room. They hung up the phone, and then another person asked Max, Max, have you ever been unkind to one of your children? Max began to boast about what a great daddy was, and then someone asked again, Max, have you ever been unkind to one of your children? He said, well, I was a little thoughtless with my nine-year-old daughter last Christmas Eve. I don't really remember what happened. I just kind of get this heavy feeling whenever I think about it. Then O'Connor dialed another number. This time, Max's wife picked up the phone and he said, Sean Murphy O'Connor calling, ma'am. We are in the middle of a group therapy session and your husband just told us that he was thoughtless to your daughter. Last Christmas Eve. Could you give us the details, please? Then a soft voice filled the room. Yes, I can tell you the whole thing. Our our daughter Debbie wanted a pair of shoes for her Christmas present, and on the afternoon of December 24, my husband drove her downtown, gave her a bunch of money, told her to buy the best shoes in the store, so she did. When she climbed back into the car, she kissed him on the cheek and told him he was the best daddy in the whole world, and so Max decided to celebrate on the way home. He stopped at the cork and bottle That's a bar a few miles from our house. He told Debbie he would be right out. It was a clear and extremely cold day, about 12 degrees above zero. So Max left the motor running and locked both doors from the outside so no one could get in. It was a little after two in the afternoon. Then she grew quiet and they could all hear her crying. But she went on. My husband lost track of time and Purpose and everything else. He, he came out of the bar at midnight. The motor had stopped running. The car windows were frozen shut. Debbie was badly frostbitten in both ears and on her fingers. When we got her to the hospital, the doctors had to operate. They amputated the thumb and forefinger of her right hand and she will be deaf for the rest of her life. At that Manning says, Max fell to the floor and began to sob hysterically. O'Connor got up and turned to the rest of the men and said, let's go. Then 24 recovering alcoholics and addicts climbed the stairs out of the room, leaving Max on the floor, his sobs turning into shrieks. But after that event, he went through the most striking Personality change. He got honest and he became more open. He became more sincere, actually more vulnerable than any other man in the group. The night before Max completed treatment to move on to the next step, one of the men in treatment with him passed by his room and he saw that Max had been crying and he looked up. Max wiped tears away from his face and said, I just prayed for the first time in my life. The mask had come off. There's a third thing that's behind a lot of mask wearing. Let's call it crisis mode living. Maybe over the last 18 months, you've gone through a crisis of some kind and maybe the reality is you've just been trying to face it all by yourself. Maybe it was job loss. Maybe it was a medical issue. Maybe it was family related, like either maybe with a a spouse or maybe one of your kids. Maybe it was abuse, emotional, maybe physical. Maybe you're just finding yourself right now at the very end of your rope and you don't know what to do. Well, I wanna tell you, your mask needs to come off. How, you say? Well, quite simply, you need to allow others in. You need to let someone love you. You have to open up, you need community. And our, our terms here at Southwinds, you need a life group, you need people in your life, you need to be able to take off your mask and say to some other flesh and blood people, my name is Emily and I have breast cancer and I'm scared to death. You need to be able to say my name is Tom and I lost my job and I don't know how I'm gonna take care of my family. My name is Dan. And I have a daughter addicted to drugs and my heart is breaking for her and I have no energy. I'm emotionally and spiritually exhausted. If you've been at Southwinds very long, you probably know that we have a saying around here. No perfect people allowed. In case you were wondering, that's how you got in. Because we don't allow perfect people. But part of what that saying means is you don't have to wear a mask. You don't need to wear a mask. See, a a church family is designed to be a place where we can take off our mask and we can walk through our problems together, where we can weep and we can rejoice together, where we can be brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers to one another. And I'll be honest with you, as a church, sometimes we make some mistakes. We don't always get it right. But many times... By God's grace, we do. Many times, people when they open up, they are received with grace and they find help and it changes everything. Some of you are here today because you've gone through that kind of grace. It has changed everything for you. But what I want to remind all of us is this, none of that can happen when we're wearing masks. That only happens when we take our masks off and we allow other people to see what's behind the mask. Uh, Many years ago, early in my time as a pastor, I read a story that over the years, I know I've shared several times, maybe here, and it was in a book written by an author named Robert Fulgham and and he he wrote about the, the kids game that we've all played hide and seek, right? We've all played this game, we know how it works. And and Fulgen was talking about that game, and he said, the game is great unless one kid hides too well, and no one can find him. He said, when that happens, usually the other kids give up, and finally the, the kid who hid too well came out, and that kid's mad because they quit looking for them, for him, and the other kids are mad because he hid too well. He said, You have to be able to be found. To play the game. He then writes in his book about a man who discovered he had terminal cancer. This man was a medical doctor and he did not want to make his family or friends suffer through the illness with them. And so he kept his secret and he eventually died. And everybody said how brave that he was to bear his suffering in silence and not tell anyone. Everybody said that except his family. And his family was so angry that he did not feel like he needed them or that he could trust them with his pain and support him in his pain. They were incredibly hurt because he never said goodbye to them and he never allowed them to say goodbye to him. Fulgham writes, this man hid too well. After 18 months that we've been through, maybe for you it's years, maybe for some of us like it's a lifetime I just wanna ask a question. Is it time for you to stop hiding and let yourself be found? There's one more thing I think that leads many of us to wear masks, and this is a real simple one. It's our sin, just sin, just sin. We're like David, and an interesting thing to think about, for some of us, it actually might be easier if it was depression or if it was addiction, or if it's a crisis. It would be easier for us to open up if it was, but because it's just the sin that we have chosen to live in, the last thing we wanna do is take off our mask and reveal what has happened in our lives, open ourselves up to others. Can I tell you something, as your pastor? There are only two ways that this plays out. And the first is what happened with David, and it's this God takes your mask off. And God is so good and so faithful to often do that. And the time will come one day when He will. Whether it happens in this life or whether it happens in the life to come, one day, for sure, without doubt, there will be an accounting. There will be a reckoning for our sin. And I wanna tell you something today. Maybe you've never thought about it before, but the one thing you do not want to do is leave your mask on your entire life and then die, which, by the way, in case you're confused about this, you will do one day. The statistics, they, they keep hovering right up around 100%. One out of one people dies. Last time I checked, it's always that way. The last thing you wanna do is hide and hide until you die and then you stand in the presence of a holy God and that's when your mask comes off. You do not want to do that, friends. You do not wanna do that It will be too late at that point, too late. But there is, there is a second way this can play out and that is simply this. You take the mask off now yourself. Take it off. And then when you do, you do what David did because the truth is, when you get to the end of the story, David did one thing right. It took him a long time to get there, but he finally did it right. When his mask came off, he did not lie. He did not resist. He did not defend. He did not deflect or rationalize. He didn't run away. He just fell to his knees and he was a wreck, but he owned his sin Psalm 32 is one of the places in the scripture where we find David's response to what he had done. And I'm gonna read the first five verses of this psalm. And if you wanna deal with the mask of sin in your life, I'm just telling you, this is a wonderful place to go. David says, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Now, There's so much in those five verses. But I just wanna point this out. What you see here is David getting brutally honest about his sin. It's David seeing his sin for what it was. And and I wanna point out a couple things. Maybe you can explore this more in depth in your, your life group this week. Notice that he uses several words to describe his sin. He doesn't just use one word. He uses several transgressions. Sin iniquity. He, he's looking at different shade. Each of those words in Hebrew has a different shade of meaning and David is just exploring and being honest about what his sin means in all of its fullness. Then in verse five, maybe you notice this, four times he uses the word my. He, he, he takes full responsibility for his sin. And I just wanna tell some of you, maybe you need to hear this today, the problem for some of us is when we get to dealing with our sin, it's always your, it's always you. It's never me, it's never my. We're always blaming, we're always deflecting, we're always putting it off on someone else. And and when we do that, what we're really doing is we're keeping the mask on, take the mask off, own our sin is what we need to do. And that is exactly what David does, he owns his sin. I want you to notice this as well. This is exactly what it takes to become a follower of Christ. You cannot follow Jesus unless you own your own sin. It is only when we own our own sin that we can ask God to forgive us our sin and we can receive what Jesus has done for us through his death on the cross. It is only when we own our sin that we can find life. And this is such an important thing to think about because in our culture today, maybe you've noticed this, we rarely take sin seriously. So what happens I think sometimes is people don't understand why Jesus had to die on the cross and maybe that's where you are today. Let me give you the simplest answer that I can think of and it's this, your sin, my sin, our sin is far more serious than we think. See, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And the reason the Bible says that is, that is because sin cuts us off from God. God is the giver of life, and if you cut yourself off from the source of life, you die. The wages of sin is death. And I think we, we, most of us understand intuitively that the greater the status of some person that we might offend in our society, the greater the offense, the greater the consequences. Think about this. God is infinite. Therefore, all sin deserves infinite punishment. It deserves death. The Bible tells us that God is holy and and God is just. And, And the truth is, God cannot respond to sin in any other way and still be God. And I think deep down, when we stop to think about it, we know that and we want that. We want God to be a just God. But he's also also a God full of love. He's a God of mercy, a God of grace, a God of patience. And when justice meets love, you drive a nail into your own hands. You step in, you take the penalty, you pay the price. And that's what God, our holy, loving Father, has done for us through the person of Jesus his son. As author Frederick Beekner once put it, like a father saying about his sick child, I would do anything to make you well, God finally calls his own bluff and does it. God said he would do anything to make you well, and he did, he did. So before you you find yourself thinking, confessing your sin before a holy God is too awkward to imagine, too frightening to envision, too humiliating to consider, remember this, never forget this. Jesus died so you would feel free to do that. Jesus died so that you would be met with nothing but love and forgiveness. Jesus died so that you would have all the second chances you need. And that means for us today, friends, no matter what's behind your mask, no matter what kind of sin it might be or what kind of series of sin it might be, what kind of family of sin it might be, taking it off, owning it, and receiving forgiveness, that's your only hope. And that is life eternal. And all of that, all of that, truth is, it's just one prayer away. Just one prayer. Are you ready? Are you willing to pray, to talk to God, to do whatever it takes to remove the mask that's between you and him?